This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, I'm going to get to Ben Mulroney in a couple minutes on this, but let me start here. There's two I words I think about with um, with why you would criticize government. Two I words. I, I won't leave you, you know, hanging. Their ideology. You may disagree with the government's ideology. Oh, I like this idea. I'm not sure about this one. You can debate ideology. What you can't generally debate is incompetence. And when ideology is something you disagree with, but you're also seeing a government run their office with a level of incompetence, that's a bad mix. And maybe that's why you give the opposition opportunities to use phrases like everything feels broken. That's the whole thing. And I reference this international incident because it is that that happened on Friday night in the House of Commons heading into Yom Kippur weekend, no less, uh, for our Jewish friends and our Jewish families that we're close to, where you invite uh, accidentally. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to suggest anything otherwise, but you invite a veteran. Uh, an undeniable veteran of a Nazi secret service division during the second world war. You invite him to get a standing ovation and Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president is there. This wasn't any normal day. This wasn't any normal moment. And I know the speaker of the house, Anthony Rhoda, a liberal MP from the North Bay area has taken an element of responsibility for this. Um, But There'd be a vetting process. Anybody would know this about who gets on the floor of of the House of Commons during such a vital time. You can't just invite Bob from sales. You can't invite Brad, your best friend. You can't do that. There'd be a vetting process for that. And there was just none of that. It doesn't seem like here. And the vetting process, I, I could have helped them with the vetting process because I have Internet access. Like it was not that difficult yesterday morning to go and track this person down and figure out exactly what side they were fighting for. And it wasn't our side. Here's what happened in the House of Commons on Friday. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98. He's a Ukrainian hero, a Canadian hero, and we thank him for all his service. Thank you. All right. And it got uh, that got explained. There's the standing ovation. Everybody's up. And that's Anthony Rhoda, uh, speaker and MP. I expect he will resign this week. I don't expect David Aiken said the same, that he'll be speaker at the end of the week. But he's almost um, passing the buck and and falling on his sword to protect people that should have vetted this from either the prime minister's office or beyond. I'm not blaming any MP because they're aghast at what happened here. I'm really not blaming any MP in this context. But there's people and we need to know more about this. That's not politicizing the situation. 
So it feels like a one-story morning. We're going to get to a lot more than just this one story on Think Tank later this morning with uh, former Deputy Mayor of Toronto, Anna Bailau, and our next guest, broadcaster Ben Mulroney, who joins us for an early advanced look at that. Ben, good morning. Thanks for being up with us. Good morning, Gregory. How are you today? Uh, couldn't be better. Um, this story's really something. I, I, a lot a lot has been on the House of Commons, and as you know uh, through your father, a lot can, a lot can be unexpected. I don't think we forecast this Friday morning when we woke up. I don't, I don't think anybody did. I mean, we, we're a country. I remember when I was a kid, I went um, campaigning with my father uh, out west. And we're talking 30, 25, 30 years ago. There were a million Canadians of Ukrainian extraction in Canada, which means there are far more today. Are you telling me this is the best we could do on that day when the Ukrainian president, who is Jewish, was in the House of Commons? The vetting process, you're absolutely right, failed categorically. There might have been an element of of, um, confirmation bias where they were looking to bring this guy in and it didn't really matter. They liked the look of him. And so they brought him in. But uh, I think Anthony Rota did the right thing. Uh, The only thing he played, the only card that he could, which was to apologize and fall on his sword. But the vetting process uh, up and down and needs to be looked at. Um, and, And look, I have not yet heard of a personal apology from the prime minister to uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who was in the House of Commons, that it was shameful that he needed to be put through that. In retrospect, it's probably one of the most embarrassing things that has ever happened in the House of Commons, especially, as you said, in the context of Yom Yom Kippur. Um, And... um, Mm. This is this is this is you're absolutely right is a story that is not going to go away. Linda Frum is a former Canadian senator, and that name should be familiar both because of her brother, David, and her amazing mom, Barbara. You and I would have grown up watching uh, The Journal right after the National so many nights, (laughs) Monday to Friday, around 1030 or so. And Linda tweeted out, uh, Ben, the responsibility for vetting guests to the House of Commons rests with the Speaker's office and the Prime Minister's office. The outrage here should not be directed at Parliament. The responsibility for this stain belongs to our Prime Minister and Speaker. To your point that Justin Trudeau, if not last night, certainly first thing today, be in front of a microphone, be in front of a camera and explain it and apologize for it. Oh, absolutely. And, and more than that, I remember, again, in, in 1987, my dad, my dad set up a royal commission, um, uh, sort of a new way to, to hunt Nazis in Canada and make sure they were held to account for their crimes against humanity. Um, we know this guy's a Nazi. We need to investigate and find out if, in fact, uh, he committed war crimes. And if he did, he needs to be held on trial. He needs to be held to account. He needs to, sp- he needs to spend his dying days, his last days, his dying breath in a prison in Ukraine amongst the people that he hurt so, so gravely. I don't care if he's eight years old, 98 years old, 208 years old. This guy deserves to die in prison if, in fact, it turns out he is guilty of crimes against humanity. I think you made you make this point as well, uh, is that it's a scenario also where for Vladimir Zelensky, this is terribly embarrassing. He or his people have been incredibly careful, clearly, because there'd be a price on his head from millions of people attempting to kill him. So the, the concept of keeping him safe wherever he goes, whatever he does However, they've managed his steps, Ben, they've done a really good job until Friday. And he he couldn't possibly have known that Canada didn't do its job in putting him on the House of Commons floor. He's Jewish, by the way, putting him on the House of Commons floor in a position where he stands up, smile on his face and applauds this this war criminal. Well, you know, on one level, it, it makes us look like an unserious country. Doesn't it? It makes us look like a country that just the things that need to be taken seriously, the things that other countries 
uh, do just by just by oh, oh, uh, just by doing mm-hmm. because they they're used to it and they appreciate how serious things are. It seems like we just gloss over this sort of thing, uh, and and we need to start showing people that we take the small things seriously. Do the s- small things seriously. You're gonna, you're going to take the big things seriously as well. And this was something. This was a gimme, right? <laughs> there are so many great Ukrainian mm-hmm. uh, Canadian Ukrainians of accomplishment of note of merit that deserve to be there to be in that moment. Could you imagine what it would what it could have meant to a, to, to a Ukrainian uh, who's been here their entire lives, who supports this cause entirely. Could you imagine if that seat had been taken up by somebody for whom this truly meant something? That would have been a great story. Instead, we had a Nazi sitting there. Um, and, 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 and it's bad on absolutely every level. And again, not the least of which you pointed out um, um, dur- during Yom Kippur, um, probably the most <laughs> insulting thing that could, do, that could be done to any Jew uh, anywhere was done in our House of Commons yeah. by our government. It's really something. We're all, uh, we're, I think it raises all our temperatures up. We'll be chatting at 7.30. Thanks for this advanced look in, and, and I can't wait to talk to you then. See you then. I'll, I'll see you soon, Greg. Bye. There's Ben Mulroney, uh, broadcaster, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Dr. Eric Hams, economics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, and I know he has thoughts on this. I want to get to Young and Dundas Square. Um, I, I thought, you know, Friday that Canada-India would be the biggest uh, national issue that we'd speak of because we're a week removed from um, the allegation of a state-sponsored assassination. But here we are, uh, seemingly a uh, Nazi soldier, though of Ukrainian descent, Eric, in the House of Commons getting a standing ovation Friday. Whoever would have imagined it? You know, this is the problem with this federal government. Honest to God, they just keep tripping over themselves. You're talking about a government that at a time when people are the most stressed financially and economically, the prime minister came out with some idiot comment like, well, we don't really worry about monetary policy as people are losing their homes. And now on the night before Yom Kippur, Mm. the night before the holiest day of the calendar, they bring out a Nazi just to show show them off and to thank them for their service. And this is the problem. I'm not blaming the speaker. I'm not blaming any one person. This is this has multi-layers, as you said. It's nuanced. But you know what? It's perception. And this is why, as the polls start to show that this government's approval ratings are plummeting, this is exactly one of the reasons, because they just keep stepping on the banana peel and falling flat on their faces. So last week with Canada and India, um, it's it's taken an unnecessary backseat uh, based on all the talk and all the raised temperatures over this. We have an economic relationship with India, um, but I, I was surprised to find out they're only our 10th biggest trading partner. I, I know the plan in the U.S. is to increase their trade with India and reduce it with China. What could a frayed relationship do to our trade and to our economy? Well, this is the problem. Like, they are not one of our most massive trading partners. I mean, there are firsts among equals. And so we have to worry about countries like the United States of America and China if we're really solely looking at our gross national product, gross domestic product. But you know what? These are linkages that are essential. Countries need lots of trading partners because, as you know, countries need lots of goods. And it's impossible to have a comparative advantage or a cost advantage on really more than a few. So to sacrifice uh, an important trading partner at this time, it's again, go let's say it again, it's perception. It's looking at the federal government saying, what 
are you doing? What are you doing at the time you're doing it? Wrong time, wrong policy, wrong statement. And these people just keep trotting it out and eventually hoping to get the play right, Greg, but they never do. And the tourism as well. I mean, we think about tourism as the thing that we do, Eric, but it's it's a business uh, first and foremost. And uh, we've been hurting, obviously, our tourism industry has coming out of COVID. People had perceptions about how locked up we were in Toronto, in Canada. And there have been some elements that people have been hesitate to return to. So when India cancels visas for uh, for Canadians to come there, won't it won't we just look and say there will be a ripple effect the other way of Indians of of all nationalities to come here to Canada and have a good time for a week or go visit somebody that's going to have a ripple effect. Well, for sure. And that's what I was going to say next is that there's a real positive externality to tourism because people don't just come here. As you know, they come here and they stay in hotels and they eat in restaurants and they go to bars and they go to shows and they go to baseball games. And and that propensity to have one dollar turn over and over and over is truly what fuels an economy at the end of the day. And so, as you know, there is a wonderful, large Indian population in this city. And if they start to rethink that decision and the people in India start to rethink coming to Canada, there's maybe better places we can go spend our money. Yeah, that's something that we're actually going to feel not only at the cash register, but in our macro economy in terms of gross domestic product. Eric Camps, our guest, economics professor at TMU University. So Toronto Metropolitan University kind of has owned that young Dundas Square area. Um, the square opened in 2003, and there was a great story in the Toronto Star about what it's lacking right now and the money that it's costing the city as well. I'll tell you, when I first moved here in fall of 07, I'd spend a lot of time in the square. You'd pop up from the subway and you'd, just, you'd be dazzled by it. Big box stores, Canadian Tire, Best Buy, smaller stores as well. It's you've seen what's transpired here. Give us in a nutshell where it went wrong and if there's anything that can be done about it. You know, Sheldon Levy, the former president of what is now Toronto Metropolitan, he said that as the city grows, Young Dundas grows and the university grows and they were kind of intertwined. And I think that there are two big things going on. First of all, as you said, it's disgusting. My office is right there and you cannot walk around Young Dundas Square without seeing two things right in your face. Number one, closed stores. There mm -hmm. are nothing but closed shops closed restaurants. And you were really right when you said busy things are safe things. That's why Sheldon wanted to put in all of our buildings, food and shopping at the bottom, because then there is foot traffic and that's a safer place. So number one, you have empty spaces, which turn into where gangs hang out, turn into where drug addicts hang out. And so wherever you see empty space and boarded up buildings, you know, there's no good. Number two, whose dumb idea was it to put a safe injection site at number one, the middle of the biggest intersection, most important intersection in Canada, and number two, on a campus, on a campus where a quarter of the students aren't even 19 years old yet. And that's number two. The drug addiction and mental health problems at Young Dundas Square are have torn it down. And so, Greg, what are you going to do? I'm not a city builder, but I think that the government has to really look at study this. They've got to look at subsidies to bring businesses back. First and foremost, mm -hmm. we have to get the safe injection site out of there. Number two, bring businesses back and get foot traffic back, because until it's busy again, it's never going to be safe. And right now, I wouldn't let my daughter walk from Young and Dundas 
the Bay and Dundas. Yeah. And TMU, as you know, is on, uh, is on my son's list and you teach there and you know, they pay your salary, but there's a lot of families weighing the pros and cons. They just have to, and, and they will, whether it's their son, their daughter, their 18 year old, they're going to think about these things. What you just said. Greg, I asked a security person not long ago, because now all of our doors are locked. You need mm -hmm. a staff card to get into every single door on the campus. And I asked them why they did this. And they said, do you know that the violence on the campus between campus members is almost non-existent? Every piece of violence on our campus is somebody outside the campus against somebody inside the campus. That is reprehensible. It shouldn't happen. And by the way, the people that say mm -hmm. what we don't need are police and we need social workers, ridiculous when someone is there in one of our washrooms holding a student hostage i don't want a social worker i want a police person with a gun it is time to clean up young and dundas you built it you wanted it to be the centerpiece of the country now fix the damn thing because it's embarrassing passionate stuff and that's why we love you eric cam uh from tmu economics professor thanks for the time today stay healthy greg this is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We all want, uh, how would I, well, would I put it, peace, harmony. We want our education workers to get a good deal that gives them the comfort to let us teach our children. ETFO President Karen Brown is kind enough to join us for a few minutes right now. Thank you for getting up early. You're a teacher, so you're naturally up early and ready to spring into a new work week. So I thank you for the time this morning. Uh, thanks for having me on, Greg. Absolutely. So our, our reporting notes that um, your your union's still a little bit far away on money um, with the province, but this seems to be more the province not moving. We've got numbers of uh, rate of inflation plus 1% for each year of the agreement. The province offering 1.25%. How accurate is that? Uh, that, is, that is accurate. I don't like to go into all the details, mm -hmm. but it's pretty public knowledge of what that was their offer. And um that offer hasn't hasn't changed. So we are actually uh, started our um, central bike strike votes across the province. I'll be beginning my my trip across the province tomorrow to locals uh, to to let them know uh, where we are in bargaining and that that proposal by the government that has not shifted and it's a it's a real uh, real problem. We too are looking for an exceptional deal. When I heard that <laughs> that terminology, I was like, wow, that's great. What do you, I mean, you obviously uh, in the public sphere, you must hear from people in private industry that say, I won't get um, a 5% raise this year or next year or the year after that. Um, and there's obviously people who are teachers who are married to people in the private sector, not expecting a 5% raise. What do you say to explain the need for this? Well, if you're looking over the last 10 years, actually, our, our salaries have gone down with inflation. Uh, we had a we were there was a salary cap of a freeze uh, for this government three year freeze with, with Bill 124. We we had an appeal, so we're we're just trying to keep up with with inflation. So actually, over the years, uh, teacher salaries have not been keeping up. We are far behind. This is um, an opportunity for us to to put things uh, in perspective in regards to um, the the level of education, the qualifications our members have in comparative to other sectors and in comparative uh, to what's happening with inflation in other provinces. The government moved quickly when uh, QP workers went out for two days. And obviously, um, ETFO workers, OSSTF workers supported them and thought, well, we can't teach in the schools without um, without our, our, you know, basically our spine, our backbone there to support us for those two days on the Friday and the Monday. Um, it hasn't got to that. No one wants it to. But the province seemed to move with a bit more speed in that context than they have with your union right now. What's the explanation for that? How disappointing is that? 
Oh, well, I think it was a little bit of a different situation. Uh, right now, the province, I think they learned from that experience. They were trying to impose a collective agreement on QP. They were trying to override our, their, their charter rights with the notwithstanding clause. And they were trying to set a pattern for bargaining that would impact us and labor across Ontario and outside of Ontario. Uh, the other provinces outside Canada, Canada was across Canada, was looking at us. So labor said we needed to come together. Uh, it's a, it was, an, it was a, a violation, overstepping of this government, uh, not just for QP, but it was setting a tone. And I think that has really um, put the government in a position where they they can't try to do that, try to impose a collective agreement, um, really restrict our rights to even take the issue to court, uh, challenge it constitutional. It, it was really a, a operating as a dictatorship and it was um i think they were testing the waters and and labor said no way karen brown's joining us president of the elementary teachers federation of ontario on toronto today i know you're looking for a primary class size cap as well when you talk to teachers of grade two grade three and and you're looking for no class exceeding 23 pupils what do they say the difference is between teaching 23 24 kids and 29 30 kids what tell the average parent what makes that such a dramatic difference well, it's, it's the amount of attention that your your child is going to be able to to receive. It's not just the, the the bodies in the class; it's the needs of these children. How many of those children in the class are actually required uh, are special needs students who require additional attention? Which means they're taking away the attention uh, from from your child. Uh, is it um, and it's an opportunity for them to actually be able to carry out the curriculum uh, more, so smaller group settings. It gives an opportunity for students to work in in smaller group settings. So it's a, it's a win-win uh, for everyone uh, in regards to what can actually happen for the teacher to meet the outcomes of students. The government has outcomes that they want us to meet. We'd love to meet those outcomes. But um, when you're looking at violence also in the classroom, the amount of interruptions and disruptions that a teacher is dealing with because yeah. those three extra students aren't getting the attention, it's phenomenal. I hear from everybody, and I'm sure you do too, there's no public appetite for labor disruptions um, at, at all at any level. But I often hear people frame that as something going towards the teachers, and I think, but there's the government responsibility to make sure that happens as well. I mean, this is like any negotiation. I think there's half the responsibility on one side, half on the other. Absolutely. That's why it's called a collective agreement. Both sides come together. What we've seen from this government is there hasn't been a willingness to engage at the teacher occasional teacher table. We were able to uh, get a, an agreement, a fair agreement so far for our members, our education members, who are, they're going to be um, getting information soon on a ratification process. That's because the government decided to move and decided to engage in the process and to address our key priorities. Uh, we have some key things. Special education funding is key. Trying to cut our benefits, that's a problem for our members. Uh, our professional judgment, violence in schools, and hiring. Hiring occasional teachers. When a teacher is away and your your child needs a qualified teacher coming in, yeah. the working conditions are horrible. They're not picking up these jobs because the working conditions are not being addressed. Yeah, it has to be made to be attractive to be a supply teacher or to step in on a, on a mat leave or, or something like that. I've got to leave it there, but let's keep these conversations going because they're important and we all want to see a deal get done, Karen. Thanks for the time today.
Thank you, Greg. Take care. Karen Brown, uh, EDFO president, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Marcus Colga is the director of Disinfo Watch and the senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, and he joins us now. This is not the conversation uh, you and I planned to have, probably, when we said, please come on over the weekend and talk about <laughs> Zelensky triumphantly making his way to the House of Commons floor, more funding for Ukraine, coming to yeah. Toronto for the first time. How big a national and international embarrassment is this? Well, um, listen, thanks for having me on, Greg. And yeah, I was looking forward to uh, talking about Zelensky's speech. I, I had the privilege of, of being in the House of Commons for that speech and and uh, caught his uh, event here in uh, in Toronto as well. And, you know, I, quite frankly, I mean, both speeches, those events were incredibly successful. Uh, and uh, Zelensky, as always, was able to draw um, f- focus on the struggle that his people are facing, the tragedy that they faced over the past 18 months, the, the hundreds of thousands of, of Ukrainian casualties, the, the tens of thousands of children who've been kidnapped, all of that was successful. And unfortunately, uh, all of that was quickly derailed uh, because of, as you say, the um, government's failure to properly vet um, this individual who uh, was invited into the House of Commons by uh, by Anthony Rhoda, uh and was unfortunately uh, fighted there. And this this story has completely, as I said, derailed the the good news story. Um, I think it's a big deal nationally, and it should be a big deal nationally. Um, you know, we can't have these sorts of people um, uh, invited into the House of Commons, and certainly not to receive a uh, a standing ovation, um, but again, it should not distract us from the uh, from the real problem here. Why Zelensky was here, and that's uh, Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine. Internationally, I would also say that I mean, uh, I've, I took a scan of of international media. It's, it doesn't look like this story is really resonating too far outside of Canada. Where it really is resonating is uh, is inside Russia and and with Russian state media, though. Yeah, they're thrilled. They're they're thrilled at a moment like this. Yeah. Um, do you think Trudeau will apologize to Zelensky for putting him in this uh, position or just have, having to, he, you know, it, it, if the buck stops with the prime minister and the leader of a country um, and he's got that relationship, would he reach out and say he's, he's sorry he put him in that spot? Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he has, hasn't already called uh, Zelensky to, to apologize for that situation. I mean, it's, it's serious. Now, not only uh, is this the, the president of Ukraine, uh, and again, it's, it's sort of distracted from his message here, but He's also Ukraine's Jewish president, and mm-hmm. uh, to have a, a member of of the uh, of the Waffen SS in the in the House of Commons uh, while he was speaking is 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 clearly offensive. And so, uh, I'm sure that the Prime Minister has has talked to President Zelensky. I, you know, I was explaining how um, we've oversimplified what World War II is in Eastern Europe into good guys and bad guys, and it's a lot more complicated than that. I know you know your history, but for those uh, who have either <laughs> forgotten it from history in high school or even university, it is you do have to have a bit of a vetting process if you're inviting somebody from Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and yeah, even Ukraine or Poland to speak, and you call them a World War II veteran, you got to be sure they were on one side and not the other. Yeah, well, I mean, being on one side or the other is is also, I mean, it's an oversimplification. I think the Canadians have this very uh, unfortunately, narrow Western view of what happened in, in World War II because we were over here and and we were you know we were clearly on the side of good, um, you know and we we mm-hmm. what we do need to remember when it comes to Russia itself, um, Russia uh, entered into a friendship pact with the Nazis in uh, in August of 1939. Um, because of that pact, 
they were able to coordinate the start of the Second World War. They both attacked Poland in, in September of 1939, and they remained friends for two years. Um, and so mm. we need to remember this. Uh, that pact allowed the Soviets to uh, occupy several countries in Eastern Europe, including the Baltic states. Um, and so at the end of World War, one of the critical things that is often missed, I think, when Canadians are taught history, is that when the, the uh, Germans were retreating and the Soviets were coming back to, to occupy those countries, most of those people in those countries started shooting in an eastward direction to try and, and hold off the Soviets until the Germans were out so they could restore their independence. Right. But that means that the Germans and those independence fighters were fight, shooting in the same direction, but that does not mean that they were allied. So, the, you know, this, the history for, for much of Eastern and Central Europe, including Ukraine, is quite nuanced, and we're, we often miss that. Um, I got 45 seconds. The buzz being in a, a big room with Zelensky, um, it's got to be massive. What's it like? Well, I'm, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, he is such a magnetic and charismatic figure. Um, and the, the, he had the focus of the entire room. And being there at this moment in history inside that room was, was just incredible. And it was like, it was just a privilege of a lifetime. Uh, so, I mean, he is just, he is our, uh, today, our modern era Churchill. And so, uh, yeah, no, it was incredible, an incredible privilege to be there. We'll see where this bounces. It is a big story nationally, that's for sure. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, more apologizing today uh, for it. Marcus, thanks so much for the time today and uh, appreciate your perspective on this. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Greg. There's Marcus Colga, director of disinfowatch.org. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to bring on City Councillor Josh Matlow uh, to join us. Josh, when you think about Young Dundas Square, we have seen um, an, an evolution. Unfortunately, it's it's not for the better. The Toronto Star article over the weekend hit on a lot of issues that I think we, we hope could be fixed, but we're just not sure what, whether they can be. Yeah, good morning. Um... We need to give people a reason to visit Dundas Square. Um, beyond it being the sort of vapid concrete event space that's used for specific events, um, you, you, the greatest squares, the greatest, the greatest public uh, spaces in the world have a sense of identity. Uh, you know, people routinely go to them. There's, there's a design around the perimeter of the squares, the, the outer squares, where there's often, you know, cafes and patios and there's sort of a life that's there so that then you continue to come for the events that are, that are, that are provided. So uh, I, I really think that Dundas Square needs to be reimagined. Um, you know, Toronto uh, has a very long and I'd say shameful history when it comes to public spaces, mm-hmm. where it seems to reach for the height of mediocrity. There's just lots of concrete and there you go. Uh, Nathan Phillips Square is, isn't much different. And I think we can do a lot better when it comes to putting more, you know, patios out there, uh, you know, buskers, street performances, um, you know, animated in a way that, that makes it attractive for people to come. And I think if we do that, people will go to it. And by, by making them vibrant, wonderful places to go, they'll also be more attractive for investment. So I, I think it's a win-win if we do it right. A few people, Josh, have made the distinction between attracting consumers and attracting citizens. And citizens can be consumers. But but I see the distinction there, whereas if you bring people back that live here, not just tourists, but people that say, this is happening down there, I want to be part of the, of the energy and the fun, right. you're inevitably going to spend money. Of course you are. You're going to park, you're going to eat, you're going to drink, you're going to do all those things. Well, visitors and consumers are typically the same people. I mean, if people don't visit, they're not going to spend money there. 
And um, so, you know, great, the great Zocalos, the great squares around the world will often have like restaurants around their perimeter, um, you know, where people can people watch, people can kind of be in the scene. And there's very little reason to go to Dundas Square today other than a specific scheduled event. Um, so I, I'm, 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 I'm convinced, and again, this needs to go to the review, and I, I support Councillor Moise's uh, mm-hmm. uh, request of council to do so, uh, to, to reimagine the square as a place to go, yes, to have fun, to socialize, to connect with other Torontonians, uh, to be a tourist and be in awe of Toronto, but at the same time, go and spend money in the downtown core. And I think we can do that if we reimagine what Dundas is and also how it, how it connects with, uh, with Dundas and Young around it as well. And there's a plan that is going to be unveiled over the next decade to look at ways to use those streets in a more pedestrianized way so that there's just more interaction with the square itself. Right now, we just need to give people reason to go there, and um, and there's, there are very few reasons today. Josh Mallow is our guest on Toronto Today. Um, I know you're very vocal um, and opinionated about what Doug Forch do with um, Greenbelt land. I want to know, if, and this, this obviously was reversed on Thursday, there's a lot of people thinking there's um, a potential, if he did this, could changes be made to what the province's plan is with Ontario Place? Do you grow more confident after something like Thursday that public pressure works and in terms of enacting policy? Absolutely. You know, the Ford government, um, <laughs> several times over the past four or five years, have had to backtrack and capitulate when the public has taken a stand and said, that's not acceptable to us. And uh, I mean, just imagine though, if we had a government that moved us forward rather than we, you know, celebrating every time they, they, they backtrack, but that's, that's a different story. I believe that Ontario Place can be saved. And um, now the destruction of the over 800 trees could be imminent. Um, I'm hearing that they plan to remove the Japanese temple bell uh, potentially today. And we are concerned that if the government allows for Ontario Place to be destroyed to a level that it's hard to come back from, it'll be harder to make an argument to preserve it. That being said, though, there are more and more people who are rallying, who are organizing, and are taking a stand and telling the government that Ontario Place should be for the people of Ontario and the people of Toronto and have a public waterfront rather than privatized for an Austrian company. Is there a necessary public-private balance here, though? This city is looking for every yeah. source of revenue it can possibly find. And we've talked about what Chicago does with their waterfront or, or even Coney Island in, in New York City. We've, we just let it slip for too long that there wasn't that private-public balance. How do we make it work? We, we make it work by creating the balance that you just referred to rather than just handing it over to an Austrian company uh, to, to, to create this mega spa. Uh, at our public waterfront. We can create that balance by having the right type of retail, the right kind of business that helps, again, like we were saying about Dundas Square, animate it and make it vibrant, make it a destination for Torontonians, Ontarians, tourists alike. But at the same time, keep what we value there, including our public green waterfront, because frankly, that's a destination, that's an attraction too. Um, you can strike that balance, but it shouldn't just be a handover to a to a company. Yeah. 
Josh, got to leave it there. Thanks so much for the time today. Anytime. Thanks, Greg. Josh Matlow, Toronto City Council, joining us on Toronto Today.